Continuing with uh, chapter one, what is it? Uh, looking into definitions and uh, the um, <coughs> meanings of Nibbana and related terms. The effort to teach the Dhamma and to describe Nibbana effectively has continued to be a challenging task from the time of the Buddha up until the present. Nevertheless, over the years, various wise elders and commentators have formulated explanations and similes that have helped to convey the profundity and simplicity of these truths to their listeners and readers. One such classical exposition is to be found in The Questions of King Melinda, a text that derives from the time of Greek rule in northern India following the invasion by Alexander. The Melinda of the title is known to European history as Menander, a Greek king who ruled in northwest India from 163 to 150 before the Common Era. The collection is made up of dialogues between the spiritually interested king and the Buddhist monk Nagasena. Here are some of the king's questions and the responses he received. So this is um, <coughs> a kind of interesting meeting of, of, of Buddhist um, teachings, uh, Buddhist philosophy and or European philosophy. So this is uh, Alexander, uh, uh, known to the Greeks as Alexander the Great, uh, <coughs> to the people he conquered as Alexander the Accursed. <laughs> um, uh, but he, uh, he conquered, as many people know, he originally came from Macedonia, which the Macedonians are very fond of reminding the Greeks <laughs> that uh, uh, he was an um, uh, extraordinarily gifted military commander and he conquered uh, territories all through um, central, uh, through the, the Middle East, uh, the uh, modern day Iran, through Persia, um, Afghanistan, uh, North Africa. There's lots and lots of Alexandrias dotted all over the, the map, which were cities founded by, by him. And the story goes that he reached uh, as far east as the Bayas River in the Kulu Valley of uh, um, north, northeast India. And his generals said, enough. You've conquered the world. We're not going any further. <laughs> He's kept going east and going east and going east. And he said, but there's more of the world to conquer. And his, his very um, devoted and uh, um, faithful uh, military commanders said, Sorry, sir. <laughs> this is enough. We've come all the way from Macedonia. We're not going any further. And also, the the land to the the uh, the east of the Bayas River gets more and more mountainous. But uh, they had uh, they felt that Alexander had conquered enough of the world, and so that's where he he uh, drew the line in the Kulu Kulu Valley. But uh, Greek rule was then established in uh, northern India, and uh, this king Melinda. Uh, he originally came from what was called Bactria in those days. Bagram is the um, modern-day city of Bagram, is uh, the capital of that, that region, uh, and that was where Bactria was. So that's where King Melinda um, came from. And then uh, during this time, also uh, that area of northwest India um, was evolving into the, the center of the Buddhist world. And for several centuries, uh, what's now Pakistan, Afghanistan, that was very much the sort of the heart of the, the Buddhist presence in in uh, in Asia. So anyway, this uh, uh, this particular translation here is from is it's a little bit dated in its English. That <coughs> is by E. W. Burlingame, who is an American scholar, 
Uh, my um, uh, esteemed cousin, I.B. Horner, also did an a, 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 a edition of the uh, Questions of King Melinda, but I didn't have access to a copy of her translation, so this is not... I'm not brushing her aside um, out of preference, but uh, the Burlingame translation was the one that we had available when we did this book. So, um, so the English is a little bit um, uh, dated, but rather than rewriting the whole thing, um, we thought I would just uh, use the, uh, uh, the translation as Burlingame has it. So he has a few uh, odd expressions like um, master man. Saying, instead of saying um, sir, or, or Venerable Sir, he uses this, this uh, strange expression, master man, which most people in modern English would go, huh? <laughs> not just those for whom English is not the first language, but uh, uh, if there's any uh, um, expressions that are a bit too mysterious, please just stop me and say, what is that? It's also, uh, you'll notice, it's, it's in a much more or like a sort of uh, Socratic dialogue, a sort of questions and answer, and an ordinary, more ordinary spoken English rather than the repetitive quality of the Pali, because this is already a few centuries after the Buddha's time. So this is um, about uh, <coughs> two centuries after Alexander and about uh, um, uh, three centuries, four centuries after the Buddha. So it starts off with King uh, Melinda speaking. Reverend Nagasena, you are continually talking about Nibbana. Now, is it possible to make clear the form or figure or age or dimensions of this Nibbana, either by an illustration or by a reason or by a cause or by a method? Nibbana, great king, is unlike anything else. It is impossible. This, Reverend Nagasena, I cannot admit. That if Nibbana really exists, it should be impossible to make known its form or figure or age or dimensions either by an illustration or by a reason or by a cause or by a method. Tell me why. Let me, great king, I will tell you why. Can you follow that so far? Okay. This readings are for you, so if it's, if it's not uh, meaningful, this... <laughs> Let me know. <clears throat> is there a great king, such a thing as the great ocean? Yes, reverend sir, there is such a thing as the great ocean. If, great king, some man were to ask you, great king, how much water is there in the great ocean? And how many living creatures dwell in the great ocean? If, great king, some man were to ask you this question, how would you answer him? <clears throat> If, reverend sir, some man were to ask me, great king, how much water is there in the great ocean, and how many living creatures dwell in the great ocean, I, reverend sir, should say this to him. The question you ask, master man, is a question you have no right to ask. That is no question for anybody to ask. That question must be set aside. The hair splitters have never gone into the subject of the great ocean. It is impossible to measure the water in the great ocean, or to count the living beings that make their abode there. That is the reply I should give to him, reverend sir. But great king, if the great ocean really exists, why should you give him such a reply as that? Surely you ought to measure and count and then tell him there is so much water in the great ocean. There are so many living beings dwelling in the great ocean. It is impossible, reverend sir. The question isn't a fair one. 
Great King, just as, although the great ocean exists, it is impossible to measure the water or count the living beings that make their abode there. Precisely so, Great King. Although Nibbana really exists, it is impossible to make clear the form or figure or age or dimensions of Nibbana, either by an illustration or by a reason or by a cause or by a method. Great King, a person possessed of magical power, possessed of mastery over mind, could estimate the quantity of water in the great ocean and the number of living beings dwelling there. But that person possessed of magical power, possessed of mastery over mind, would never be able to make clear the form or figure or age or dimensions of Nibbana, either by an illustration or by a reason or by a cause or by a method. Reverend Nagasena, granted that Nibbana is unalloyed bliss and that it is impossible to make clear its form or figure or age or dimensions, either by an illustration or a reason or by a cause or by a method. But, Reverend Sir, has Nibbana any qualities in common with other things, something that might serve as an, illust as an illustration or example? In the matter of form, great king, it has not. But in the matter of qualities, there are some illustrations and examples which might be employed. Good, Reverend Nagasena. And that, I might, and that I may receive, even with reference to the qualities of Nibbana, some little light on a single point. Speak quickly. Quench the fever in my heart. Subdue it with the cool, sweet breezes of your words. Isn't it a shame people don't speak like that anymore? There's something to be said for the Victorian kind of flourishes, those hats, you know, that people used to wear. There's some... Uh, <coughs> There's some beautiful quality in that kind of form of expression. Quench the fever in my heart. Subdue it with the cool, sweet breezes of your words. Just as the lotus is not polluted by water, so also Nibbana is not polluted by any of the depravities. And his word, uh, the word depravities here is a translation for the Pali uh, asava, the outflows or the, um, the taints or the corruptions. He gives it a capital D as well, capital depravities with a capital D. Just as water is cool and quenches fever, so also Nibbana is cool and quenches every one of the depravities. But again, further, water subdues the thirst of the races of men and animals when they are tired and weary and thirsty and overcome with the heat. Precisely so, Nibbana subdues the thirst of craving for the pleasures of sense, of craving for existence, of craving for power and wealth. Just as medicine is the refuge of living beings oppressed by poison, so also Nibbana is the refuge of living beings oppressed by the poison of the depravities. But again, further, medicine puts an end to bodily ills. Precisely so, Nibbana puts an end to all sufferings. Just as the great ocean is vast, boundless, fills not up for all of the streams that flow into it, precisely so, Nibbana is vast, boundless, fills not up for all of the living beings that pass thereunto. But again further, the great ocean is all in blossom, as it were, with the flowers of its waves, mighty, various, unnumbered. Precisely so, Nibbana is all in blossom, as it were, 
with the flowers of purity, knowledge and deliverance, mighty, various, unnumbered. Just as food is the support of life of all living beings, so also Nibbana, once realized, is the support of life, for it destroys old age and death. But again, further, food is the source of the beauty of all living beings. Precisely so, Nibbana, once realized, is the source of the beauty of the virtues of all living beings. Just as space is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of birds, presents no obstacles, is endless. So also Nibbana is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of the noble, presents no obstacles, is endless. So that, uh, that one paragraph is uh, one um, that I've reflected on a lot, and, and it's a comparison of uh, Nibbana with, with space. Of course, those who've um, <coughs> studied their physics will say, well, actually, space is produced. You know, so <laughs> the, uh, um, with the Big Bang, then it is said this is, that was the origin of uh, time and space, came into being. Space didn't exist before the Big Bang. The word space has had no meaning, and the word before doesn't have any meaning in relationship to the Big Bang, because there's no time, there's no space, you can't really have a before. Right? <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, all analogies are partial, are, are relative, and so um, in the, uh, in the, uh, the, the kind of um, imagery that he's uh, presenting here, just as also uh, you can say the uh, space being the pathway of birds, it means, well, there's obviously air that the birds are flying in, so that there's, there's, um, there's an atmosphere there. So he's using space, the term space, in a very, very broad, uh, say, uh, scope of, of meaning here. But uh, it's, uh, I feel it's a, it's a very good an, uh, way of representing that. And also, um, as uh, these qualities of Nibbana and that... Uh, uh, way of evoking the, the timeless quality of it, as it uh, doesn't pass out of existence, doesn't come into existence. Uh, I also like this, uh, cannot be carried away by thieves. It's like space can't be stolen uh, by, by thieves. It rests on nothing, and is the pathway of the noble. So as in the air is the pathway of birds, and Nibbana is the, the pathway or the medium of, of, uh, of activity of the noble. Just as the wishing jewel, that's the chintamani, that's like a, a, a jewel that was supposed to grant um, owner's wishes. So you have the chintamani, then you can say, I would like uh, <coughs> to have a, um, a free ticket to Thailand. That would appear. So the, uh, the chintamani <coughs> the was part of the mythology of that time. Just as the wishing jewel provokes a smile of satisfaction, precisely so, Nibbana provokes a smile of satisfaction. Just as a mountain peak is exceedingly lofty, so also Nibbana is exceedingly lofty. But again, further, a mountain peak is immovable. Precisely so, Nibbana is immovable. 
But again, further, a mountain peak is difficult of ascent. Precisely so, Nibbana is difficult of ascent for the depravities, one and all. So that the uh, the outflows or the the um, the those uh, um, obstructive tendencies of mind um, have a difficulty of ascent, like a difficult difficulty climbing a mountain when the 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 um, mind is uh, focused on uh, nibbana or has realized nibbana, then the uh, the depravities, the asavas, the, the outflows don't have any kind of traction. They can't get a grip. They can't climb it. But again, further, on a mountain peak, seeds, any and all will not grow. Precisely so in Nibbana, the depravities, any and all will not grow. Good, Reverend Nagasena. It is even so. I agree absolutely. So that's a, a fairly uh, thoroughly edited... I mean, I, I put this together a long time ago, but my memory is that's quite heavily edited. I just sort of picked out selected highlights of it. And it also reminded me with, with uh, the king continually asking these questions over and over and over. There's a, a similar passage, uh, a kind of exchange in the Upali Sutta in the middle length discourses where this uh, lay person is asking the, the Buddha these various questions. And, uh, and, and then uh, the first time that the Buddha makes an explanation, and then Upali disagrees with him, says, yeah, but that can't be true because... And then he comes up with another argument, and the Buddha explains. And then Upali, Upali says, well, that can't be true either. I don't agree with that because of such and such. And the Buddha explains again. And does this three or four times, or four or five times. And at the end, Upali says, well, actually, you convinced me after the first time, but I just kept opposing you because I wanted to hear what you were going to say. <laughs> I was so enjoying hearing your, your um, many and various explanations that I just kept asking questions because, you know, you had me convinced already, but I just wanted to hear what you, the, uh, the sweet breezes of your voice. There's also um, this imagery of the, um, the incalculable quality of the great ocean. It's a very similar, um, there's a lot in the Melinda Panha that resonates from uh, particular examples and images of the suttas, and there's a dialogue between the Arahant Nan uh, uh, Bhikkhuni Kema and King Pasenadi, when King Pasenadi is passing through the, uh, the town of Toranavatu, um, and he asks, are there any um, uh, of the Blessed One's disciples staying here? Um, uh, then he, they hear that the Bhikkhuni Kema, a disciple of the Blessed One, is staying there, so that then King Pasenadi goes to, um, to visit her. It says, now a good report concerning this revered lady had been spread abroad thus. She is wise, competent, intelligent, learned, a splendid speaker, ingenious. Let your majesty visit her. So then uh, the king, uh, King Pasenadi, opens the dialogue by asking her whether a Tathagata, uh, an enlightened one, exists after death or not, in the familiar quadrilemal form of the question. So does a Tathagata exist after death? Do they not exist after death? Do they both exist and not exist after death? Do they neither uh, exist nor not exist after death? So that's another odd, uh, unusual word, quadrilemma, meaning having four limbs. Like a dilemma has two limbs, a quadrilemma has four limbs. Uh, so that's a, a very uh, familiar um, expression in the, in the teachings. And so uh, King Pasenadi asks this uh, set of four questions. And to each of the four lemmas, exists, doesn't exist, both does and doesn't exist, neither does nor does not, she replies, the Tathagata has not declared this. 
His perplexed majesty then asks, What now, revered lady, is the cause and reason that this has not been declared by the Blessed One? Well then, great king, I will question you about this same matter. Answer as you see fit. What do you think, great king? Do you have an accountant or calculator or mathematician who can count the grains of sand in the river Ganges thus? There are so many grains of sand. No, revered lady. Then, great king, do you have an accountant or calculator or mathematician who can measure the water in the great ocean thus? There are so many gallons of water in the great ocean. No, revered lady. For what reason? Because the great ocean is deep, immeasurable, hard to fathom. So too, great king, the Tathagata has abandoned that material form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, by which one describing the Tathagata might describe him. That was the same passage I quoted yesterday. He has cut it off at the root, rendered it like a palm tree stump, deprived it of the conditions for existence, and rendered it incapable of arising in the future. <clears throat> the Tathagata is deep, immeasurable, hard to fathom, like the great ocean. So there's quite a few pieces there in that um, dialogue between Nagasena, uh, the monk Nagasena and uh, King Melinda. So uh, if anyone has any particular questions or things? I, I yes. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you said that Arahant's Still have the five khandas, but there's no king. So this sounds now as if the Buddha doesn't have the five khandas. Well, if you uh, he uh, neither has the five khandas nor does not have the five khandas. There's a, a dialogue in this very book, in a chapter called "The Unapprehendability of the Enlightened," um, where the uh, the um, the, which I will quickly turn to. Here we are. <laughs> the Buddha has a dialogue with a, a, a young bhikkhu called Anuradha. And they, uh, Anuradha, it starts off, if I can just quote this for you. So, so Anuradha um, has an encounter with a few wanderers from a, a different group, a different uh, sect. And they ask him the same questions about what happens to an enlightened being after death, because obviously it was a very um, significant, important question. And then Anuradha replies, friends, a Tathagata in describing them, what happens to an enlightened being at the, uh, after the death of the body, uh, describes them apart from these four instances. That's Anuradha's reply. A Tathagata in describing them describes them apart from these four instances. When this was said, these wanderers remarked, this must be a new bhikkhu, not long gone forth, or if he is an elder, he must be foolish and incompetent. Then having no confidence in the Venerable Anuradha, thinking him newly gone forth or foolish, they got up from their seats and went away. So then um, Anuradha then goes to the Buddha and recounts the dialogue and asks whether he answered in an in a, uh, appropriate way or not. Says, if they had questioned me further, how should I have answered them so that I might say what the Blessed One says without misrepresenting him with what is not fact and might express ideas in accordance with the Dhamma? with nothing legitimately deducible from my assertions that would provide grounds for condemning me. So he went to the Blessed One and told them about this. Then the, uh, the Buddha said, How do you conceive this, Anuradha? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Venerable Sir. The Buddha then continued as he had done in the Anattalakana Sutta, which he had spoken to his friends, the group of five bhikkhus after, uh, after the um, Enlightenment. 
And after having said this to Anuradha, he asked, How do you conceive this, Anuradha? Do you see material form as the Tathagata? No, Venerable Sir. Do you see feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness as the Tathagata? No, Venerable Sir. How do you conceive this, Anuradha? Do you see the Tathagata as immaterial form? No, Venerable Sir. Do you see the Tathagata as apart from material form? No, Venerable Sir. Do you see the Tathagata as in feeling, apart from feeling, in perception, apart from perception, in mental formations, apart from mental formations, in consciousness, apart from consciousness? No, Venerable Sir. How do you conceive this, Anuradha? Do you see the Tathagata as being all five khandhas together, material form, feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness? No, Venerable Sir. How do you conceive this, Anuradha? Do you see the Tathagata as that which has no material form, no feeling, no perception, no mental formations, no consciousness? No, Venerable Sir. Anuradha, when a Tathagata is here and now unapprehendable by you as true and established, is it fitting to say of him, Friends, one who is the Tathagata, the highest of beings, the supreme among beings, one attained to the supreme attainment, when a Tathagata is describing him, he describes them apart from the following four instances. After death, a Tathagata is. After death, a Tathagata is not. Or after death, a Tathagata both is and is not. Or after death, a Tathagata neither is nor is not. No, Venerable Sir. Good, good Anuradha. What I describe now as formally is Dukkha and the ending of Dukkha. So, uh, so then, there are a few points in these two dialogues which are particularly worthy of note. Firstly, the five modes of relationship posited as possible for a Tathagata in reference to the Khandas, identity with or being the five Khandas, existing within the five Khandas, existing apart from the five Khandas, having the five Khandas, not having the five khandhas. Describe a comprehensive schema for the habits of identification. As described in chapter 5, which we haven't got to yet, all forms of positioning of a self whatsoever, whether in terms of being or non-being, or here in terms of identity, location or ownership, all of these have been abandoned by enlightened ones. So that uh, the... Uh, the saying that the, the Tathagata has the five khandhas or doesn't have the five khandhas, is in the five khandhas or is apart from the five khandhas, is creating this sort of bubble of Tathagata-ness. <laughs> that it is somehow, um, uh, say, um, uh, separate from the five khandhas. But then what he points out in this dialogue, I mean, it takes a few readings and a, a bit of reflection, but... Um, he, uh, he's saying you don't describe the Tathagata as apart from the five khandhas. You know, even though he's, he's sitting there face to face with the Buddha, then you can't say that the Buddha is in the five khandhas or apart from the five khandhas or has them or doesn't have them or is them or is not them. None of those quite apply. So the Buddha is saying any way you, you, you try and pin it down is going to be wrong. So, and, and that's even with sitting face to face with the Buddha. Yeah, you, you can't you can't pin it down, so um, that uh, <clears throat> the five khandhas are there, but there is no uh, identification with the uh, with the, um, uh, the, uh, the the five khandhas. As it said, the uh, the Buddha has has uh, cut them off at the root, made them like a palm tree stump, so that describing what the Tathagata is 
in any way or shape or form in relationship to the body or feelings, perceptions, consciousness and so on. It doesn't apply. But they also have this, the Tathagata is, there, there is, the Tathagata is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable. There is something that is profound, immeasurable and unfathomable. <laughs> but you can't describe that. And that's this whole sort of languaging about the, the great ocean. You can't describe it, uh, what that is, in terms of our, our normal everyday perceptions about a person is a woman or a man or old or young or tall or short or healthy or unhealthy or whatever. Um, what you're, Does that make uh, sense? Uh, you could say the, uh, an enlightened being is just what because I remember there's one sutta where he speaks about that when he is eating, he experiences. Yes, a high, very acute sense of taste. Yeah. So uh, there is obviously experience, but there is nobody experiencing it. Or, or I don't know what to say in that sense. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it brings my mind, when I reflect on it, to this quality of wonderment. Oh. <laughs> because our normal reference points are time and space, individuality. Ajahn Chittapala is there. Sister Kemika is there. Ajahn Hingsko is over there. You're separate people in space. I'm speaking. Time is passing. It's now 6.31. <laughs> the, uh, we, our, our reference points are all in, in terms of time, space, individuality. And so it's only, uh, <coughs> it's, it's interesting that it's only people who are, who are uh, not stream enterers, who are worldlings, who ever ask the Buddha about what happens to an enlightened being after the death of the body. That you never get someone who has let go of self-view or let go of identification with, with the five khandhas. They never ask that question, at least as far as I'm aware, if anybody knows that, but you, you never find a place in the suttas where uh, a stream enterer or a once return or non-return, or let alone an arahant, ever asks that question. Because there's that recognition of the, you know, that the basic letting uh, realization of, of um, stream entry is the first fetter is letting go of self-view, letting go of identification with the body and with the personality. So that our normal reference points are woman, man, old, young, here, there, ha uh, and you know, time, space, uh, personality, and identity. And so that the, what you have with this presentation is not using those reference points. But if you haven't got time, or, it's rather like talking about sort of quantum physics or relativity. It's sort of you're, you're kind of left swimming. You haven't got any anything to measure things with because it's the normal reference points are not there. Time doesn't apply in the same way. Space doesn't apply in the same way. Like uh, Richard Feynman, the, the physicist, said, anyone, anyone who ever says they understand quantum physics to you is lying. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. No one, no one, and he's like a Nobel Prize winning physicist, he's, no one really understands it. And uh, because the, the imagination, our perceptions, are uh, built around... Uh, the experiences of a lifetime, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. So the experiential field is formed around the experiences of, of this lifetime and these, these human perceptions of it being a, a person.
located in space and time, in this spot, with these feelings of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And we, have, we, can, we can know those are relatively, uh, those are only relatively true, but they are the, 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 the ways that our experience is formed. You can't just stop seeing things in that, that way. It's like <clears throat> you can see Einstein's explanation about relativity, uh, but and you can understand uh, like a description of that, but uh, to to actually change the, the the way that you experience the world from uh, in terms of time or space, or uh, it's it's extremely hard to do, and without the the direct realization that you that comes through insight, comes through meditation, uh, that letting go of the the categories that the mind forms as right, wrong, good, bad, inside, outside, mine, yours. It's only through that profound non, uh, non-identification, non-grasping, then those familiar categories of blue, red, inside, outside, woman, man, old, young, that they're, they're seen as, uh, as um, convenient fictions, partial truths. Yeah, our, our conditioning of a lifetime is like that tastes good, <laughs> that tastes bad. Yeah, that's blue. This is red. So it's only through the development of of a profound insight, non a non attachment, non identification, then it can be recognised. Oh, this feeling of I is not I. It's just a feeling. <laughs> that perception of red is just a, a mental formation that, that when the mind says that colour, it says, well, that's a colour, and that colour is red. It's a the the mind can recognize. Oh, that's just what my mind is doing. So that it's a, and I, I feel these are really helpful insofar as the ocean is there. It's a big thing, <laughs> but and like the the Tathagata is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable. It's like the, if you were sitting face to face with the Buddha, you'd know. Yes, <laughs> this is a a a, 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 a an incalculably powerful and, uh, and uh, intense presence, but then to pin it down is impossible. So I think that, that image of the ocean and counting all the molecules of water in the ocean or the number of beings that live in the ocean or the sand grains in the river Ganges is, is, uh, is good because it's like the pre- you, know, you sit by the sea, it's like, wow, it's a big thing. The sea is big. But then that incalculable quality is, is also part of that. You can f- you're able to apprehend to to know that presence, but you can't define its detail. And in that this chapter, when um, as I said, it's the original in Melinda Panha is quite a bit longer than this. He goes into exhaustive detail, and uh, <clears throat> and over and over again, there's this kind of um, pointing to this um, indescribable quality. On the same, on the same line that you were, you were reading out the different names for Nirvana, or Nirvana described there was one. Uh, I don't know exactly non-trembling. Yes. And then free from on, trembling. On the other hand, uh, you know, compassion. Is, uh, Trembling for the welfare of all beings. Yeah. So then, 
Okay, Nibala, if, if you come back now to an Arahant, uh, does he have confession or not? It's something, you know. So then we, we talk about he, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. and uh, because then, then we don't have the language. That, and that's why the, when the Buddha was asked about that, he said, well, someone said, well, you talk about all Dhammas are not self, but then uh, how come you use personal pronouns like saying she and he and they? It's just, it's just <clears throat> you can almost hear him going, <sighs> sigh. <laughs> that uh, the Tathagata has no delusions about you know, any kind of uh, permanent, uh, uh, permanent separate self. But he uses the conventions of speech for the purpose of communication. So I would say, Ajahn Chittapala. Lumpur Chow would say, we use conventions of, of speech, like names, because if we just called each other person, it would get really confusing. So, but so then the, uh, the, the activities of uh, the, the mind, so it's like the, if there's no identification, no attachment, it's still the Buddha spent 45 years traveling around northeast India barefoot yeah, teaching so there was plenty of, uh, of very active compassionate activity uh, and incredible patience and kindness and uh, ingenuity for the, for, for the welfare of all beings but there wasn't I would say um, second guessing the Buddha is not a very good idea but I do it regularly <laughs> but there isn't a, uh, you know the, the, there isn't that uh, I am rescuing other living beings, I am being compassionate to you. They, yes, on the conventions of speech, you know, I am speaking to you, and in the conventions of ordinary everyday language, but uh, <clears throat> that the speech is not self. The the speaker, the, the aspects of the speaker are not self. The aspects of the, all the aspects of the listener are not self. They aren't. They don't belong to a self. They aren't a self. They, so that you take it all apart, and there's there's no people there, <laughs> but. On another level, there's you and me having a, a dialogue. So that there, there are the um, aspects of ordinary everyday living and the body and the personality and the need to breathe and eat and keep, uh, keep warm in the cold and the rain. <clears throat> but there, uh, on the, the, the level of, uh, of direct understanding or direct realization, there can be that recognition of this is just feeling, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. This isn't a person. It doesn't belong to a person. It's, it's not a self. It doesn't belong to a self. It's like in the Vajra Sutra, you have um, over and over and over again the, the Vajra Prajna Paramita Sutra. Living beings, living beings. They are called living beings. Why are they called living beings? Because there are no living beings. That's why they're called living beings. Yeah. A Bodhisattva vows to carry all living beings across. How does a Bodhisattva carry all living beings across? A bodhisattva carries all living beings across by knowing there are no living beings. That's how a bodhisattva carries all beings across. Again, over and over and over and over. So you have this, this blending of the conventional truth and, and ultimate truth. And I feel that's one of the, the great blessings and skills of the Buddha's teaching is that you don't just focus on the ultimate and ignore the, the relative. But... Uh, and I feel uh, of all of the attributes of the Buddha in many respects I feel that the vichajharana sampano which I talk about a lot is, um, is the most significant vija meaning awareness or knowledge the, 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 the position of wisdom and charana conduct so perfect in knowledge and conduct or impeccable in conduct and understanding so there's not just the ultimate view of 
uh, everything is empty, all be, you know, everything, all dhammas are not self, and sort of identifying with the ultimate view and sort of sweeping aside or ignoring the relative view, but rather that insight, that 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 wisdom of seeing the empty nature of all phenomena the, and the not-self nature of all phenomena, it's twinned, it's inextricably twinned and tied together with conduct. So it said, uh, since the Buddha's enlightenment, from the time of the Buddha's enlightenment, every word that he spoke was true and was perfectly in accord with the time and the place of situation. Yeah, every action that he took was uh, was appropriate at the time and place, and even if he did things that upset people or people complained about, then you know, without missing a beat, he would immediately, uh, like all you know, when he had to revise Vinaya rules, he would set a, a rule in place, and then somebody would misunderstand it or or kind of interpret it in a in a strange way, and he'd immediately qualify it or explain it or put a rider on it, so that that there's an incredible attention. To the details of conduct, as a way, as a as an outflowing or as a resonance of that profound insight into uh, you know, into um, the empty nature of all of all things, that there's a a, a a connectedness between the conventional realm and the and the uh, the conditioned realm and the unconditioned, and that's a, I feel is is almost like the the flavor of of Buddha Dhamma that sort of that character of the Buddha is is that it's not just this sort of ex, sort of super exalted um, wisdom. Which in you know, other wisdom traditions you get that you know enlightened yogis who have these kind of tremendous powers of of, uh, of understanding and profound profound detachment, but they can't feed themselves. They can't. They kind of can't. They can't get around. They they they're not uh, connected with the material world in any. Uh, any particularly um, uh, careful or, or um, uh, sk- uh, in a, in a um, directly skillful way, but uh, the, what you have in the, in the Buddha's life and the teachings is you have this extraordinarily you know, full connection of both the the level of profound wisdom of uh, of uh, non-identification and uh, seeing the nature of things, but also the incredible range of skillful means of living wisely in the world, helping other beings, uh, seeing what, uh, <coughs> how you know, the how to look after the household, <laughs> how to run the kingdom, <laughs> how to take care of your cattle. You know all these kind of things that the Buddha was was uh, talking about along the way. This uh, acute attention to, to detail as well. So I'll carry on, if I may, with the. See if we can get to the end of this chapter, because we have um, coming up Bhikkhu Bodhi's um, synopsis. In employing such an abundance of graphic similes, the Venerable Nagasena is following firmly in the footsteps of the Buddha. For throughout his teaching career, this was a device that he frequently used to convey a point and help it to lodge firmly in the listener's memory. As I was saying yesterday, the Buddha used. Many, many similes. Uh, Another method he employed was the formulation of numerated lists of qualities. For example, the Four Noble Truths, the Three Characteristics, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, etc. This system is also a powerful aid in committing the teachings to memory and then assisting in their retrieval. 
As a summary of this section on the theme of definitions, here is a brief but comprehensive description of the meaning of Nibbana by one of the most eminent translators of Pali scriptures in, in current times. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi's um, uh, inter, uh, is Bhikkhu Bodhi's um, introduction to the Majjhima Nikaya uh, from his uh, the original translation for most of the suttas was done by Bhikkhu Nyanamoli and then uh, that was uh, incomplete when he passed away he was only 10 reigns when he died and so Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, picked up the, the unfinished um, manuscript and then uh, polished it all up and then uh, this is the uh, uh, part of the introduction that Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote to uh, that uh, collection. The state that supervenes when ignorance and craving have been uprooted is called Nibbana, Sanskrit Nirvana. And no conception in the Buddha's teaching has proved so refractory to conceptual pinning down as this one. Refractory meaning um, difficult <laughs> or uh, uh, obstructive or uh, uh, complicated or um, uh, productive of, of obstructions. So, <clears throat> no conception in the Buddha's teaching has proved so refractory to conceptual pinning down as this one. In a way, such elusiveness is only to be expected, since Nibbana is described precisely as, quote, profound, hard to see and hard to understand, unattainable by mere reasoning. Yet in this same passage, the Buddha also says that Nibbāna is to be experienced by the wise, and in the suttas he gives enough indications of its nature to convey some idea of its desirability. The Pali Canon offers sufficient evidence to dispense with the opinion of some interpreters that Nibbāna is sheer annihilation. Even the more sophisticated view that Nibbāna is merely the destruction of defilements and the extinction of existence cannot stand up under scrutiny. Probably the most compelling testimony against this, that view is the well-known passage from the Udana that declares with reference to Nibbāna that there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned, quote-unquote, the existence of which makes possible, quote, escape from the born, become, made, and the conditioned, unquote. The Majjhima Nikaya characterizes Nibbāna in similar ways. It is, quote, the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled supreme security from bondage, unquote, which the Buddha attained to on the night of his enlightenment. Its preeminent reality is affirmed by the Buddha when he calls Nibbāna the supreme foundation of truth, whose nature is undeceptive and which ranks as the supreme noble truth. As I mentioned yesterday from the Datu Vibhanga Sutta, Majjhima 140. Nibbāna cannot be perceived by those who live in lust and hate, but it can be seen with the arising of spiritual vision, and by fixing the mind upon it in the depths of meditation, the disciple can attain the destruction of the taints, asava, also variously translated as outflows or corruptions. The Buddha does not devote many words to a philosophical definition of Nibbāna. One reason is that Nibbāna, being unconditioned, transcendent, and supramundane does not easily lend itself to definition in terms of concepts that are inescapably tied to the conditioned, manifest, and mundane. So that puts it very um, more, much more succinctly than I was able to. <laughs> we, we borrow all of our language from the conditioned, manifest, and mundane. So uh, 
That's one of the reasons why Nibbana, which is unconditioned, transcendent, and supermundane, can't be described in terms of our familiar language and concepts. Another is that the Buddha's objective is a practical one of leading beings to release from suffering. And thus his principal approach to the characterization of Nibbana is to inspire the incentive to attain it and to show what must be done to accomplish this. To show Nibbana as desirable, as the aim of striving, he describes it as the highest bliss, as the supreme state of sublime peace, as the ageless, deathless and sorrowless, as the supreme security from bondage. To show what must be done to attain Nibbana, to indicate that the goal implies a definite task, he describes it as the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all acquisitions, the destruction of craving, dispassion. Above all, Nibbana is the cessation of suffering, and for those who seek an end to suffering, such a designation is enough to beckon them towards the path. So that uh, summarizes a lot of the readings that we've had already and some of the, the comments that I've made, but uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi puts that all together in a very, very neat package. So I can recommend that. It's both here in the island, also it's in the introduction to the, the uh, Majima Nikaya, that um, wisdom publication. Well, finally, as the term Nibbana has a somewhat broad definition, over the years there have, been of, there have often been misunderstandings and misuses of the word. Here is just one example from the time of the Buddha. It harks back both to the imagery, mentioned uh, up above in the, earlier in the chapter, of dukkha as the fundamental spiritual disease and to its cessation, i.e. the establishment of perfect spiritual health through the medicine of the Noble Eightfold Path. So that's using that medical model of dukkha as the symptom, uh, uh, tanha, craving, as the cause, uh, niroda as the prognosis, cessation of dukkha as the prognosis, uh, and then the Eightfold Path as the, the treatment. So this is from the Magandhya Sutta, the Sutta number 75 of the Majjhima. It's another very rich, uh, rich sutta. And Magandhya is, a, is a something of a sensualist, and he can't understand why anyone would be ever, ever be interested in renunciation, and uh, because he's a sort of life-affirming type, and he he uh, finds it difficult to uh, see any reason why he shouldn't just enjoy everything that's pleasurable. So this is part of the dialogue in the, that uh, Magandhya Sutta. But Magandhya. When you heard that said about Nibbāna as the greatest health, quote-unquote, by earlier wanderers in the tradition of the teachers, what is that health? What is that Nibbāna? When this was said, the wanderer Magandhya rubbed his own limbs with his hands and said, This is that health, Master Gotama. This is that Nibbāna. For I am now healthy and happy, and nothing afflicts me. So too, Magandhya, the wanderers of other sects are blind and visionless. They do not know health. They do not see Nibbāna. Yet they utter, the, utter this stanza thus, quote, The greatest of all, all gains is health, Nibbāna is the greatest bliss. Unquote. This stanza was uttered by earlier accomplished ones, previous uh, Buddhas, fully enlightened ones, thus, quote, The greatest of all gains is health, Nibbāna is the greatest bliss. The Eightfold Path is the best of paths, for it leads safely to the deathless. Now it has gradually become current among ordinary people. 
And although this body, Magandya, is a disease, a tumor, a dart, a calamity, an affliction, referring to this body, you say, this is that health, Master Gotama, this is that Nibbana. You do not have that noble vision, Magandya, by means of which you might know health and see Nibbana. So the Buddha is giving him a bit of a scolding there, saying, <laughs> well, that might be your impression, but uh, when we talk about well-being, talking about health, it's, it's more than that. And uh, Nibbana is more than just having a comfortable body. So the various definitions and descriptions included so far may give you some idea of both the difficulty of making such definitions and also the range of approaches that the Buddha used to allude to the, this highest of spiritual potentials. The next chapter will explore in more detail the central metaphor that the Buddha employed in describing this ultimate spiritual goal. So the next chapter is called Fire, Heat and Coolness. Uh, <clears throat> so that... Uh, uh, yesterday we were talking about uh, Sister Tisara was wondering was wondering about why Nibbana had sort of gathered such a significance around it as a as a term, and I was saying how um, yeah somehow words just start to get used and they become they gather a life of their own, and so I was thinking about this. And funnily enough, I thought of the Quakers, you know, to, as an example. So we have this term of trembling for the welfare of all beings. So it's also the uh, the, the Christian group of uh, the Quakers. And so we call them Quakers, but quaking means trembling. <laughs> so, uh, and so we, we think of the society, the religious society of friends. They're called the Quakers. And that, they've been known as, uh, as the Quakers since the time of, of George Fox. So I thought, well, how come we call them the Quakers? You know, where does that come from? So I, I looked it up on Wikipedia, of course. They're a resource of all knowledge. <laughs> So, uh, and uh, it was um, when George Fox was being uh, hauled up in front of the, the judge, accused of, of blasphemy, I think. Um, then the uh, uh, because the uh, George Fox, who was the, the founder of the Society of Friends, he said that he said because I said that uh, I I said that we should tremble before the Lord, then the judge judge. I think it was Judge Bennett, was it? I wrote it down. <laughs> I took a note of it. So. Judge Bennett. Uh, <clears throat> uh, because George Fox said, I bade them tremble uh, at, the, at the word of the Lord. So then uh, Judge Bennett started calling him uh, uh, the, a Quaker and referring to them as Quakers in the, in the court proceedings. So they've been known as Quakers ever since. So it becomes an ordinary word, and, and it becomes sort of part of the the, uh, the everyday speech, and and has gathered to it over the several centuries since that time, <coughs> and becomes a, 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 a so a passing comment by the judge, has then turned into a, a, a kind of a term for that whole community, and has a whole sort of collection of meanings gathered around that. So nibbana, similarly, not it's not identical, obviously, but uh, how. Um, maybe it was just a, a word that the Buddha used, say in the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, um, leading to um, leading to knowledge, leading to vision, leading to sambodhi, leading to total enlightenment, leading to nibbana. And they said, nibbana, nibbana. What? What's what's that? Yeah, didn't hear of that one before. And then the the attention catches on that. I also thought another word that's come up, uh, that's been invented recently, that's gathered a great deal of of uh, meaning around it, is Brexit. <laughs> So comparing Nibbana to Brexit is a, probably an unusual uh, alignment of concepts. 
But similarly, it gets uh, somebody conjures it up in a uh, some sort of newspaper article that talking about the the idea of um, the UK leaving the the European Community, and they um, they just conjure up the term Brexit. It might have just been in one article and then been forgotten. But then was Brexit. Brexit. That's a good word. That's kind of snappy. It kind of leaves out Northern Ireland. But never mind. You know, they kind of they they probably guess they're included anyway. But, <laughs> so let's just call it Brexit. And then that. So now. Uh, however many months later, uh, a year or so since that got, first got launched. It's, it's, uh, it's a very common term in the, in the media in this country and all around the world. It's sort of, and it's gathered a whole collection of feelings and meanings and yeah, emotional charge to it. Um, and so that's how words gather meaning and that they, they, they gain a strength and they, they carry a, um, a particular... A collection of qualities with them, and so similarly, you can be sure that um, there was uh, the leavers and the remainers in the Buddha's time. Nibbana, don't do it. Don't you talk to me about that bloody nibbana. <laughs> you know, tapas, tapas. That's what we need. More tapas. You know, we're tapasins. You know, don't you talk to me about those bloody nibbanists. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you about nibbana. <laughs> Just like Brexit. You know, the leavers, the remainers. You know, it's like you can just hear the sound of, uh, of a word. And if you can be, I wasn't, maybe I was there in the time of the Buddha. But uh, you can be pretty sure that the human nature is pretty much the same now as it was then. And there'll be, and as you have in the suttas, these dialogues with the Buddha, people taking great exception to his teaching and him talking about ending rebirth or him talking about um, <coughs> the, uh, that, uh, the nature of one's birth uh, in the family you're born into is not what constitutes a real Brahmin. It's fighting talk. You know. yeah, a real Brahmin is what goes on in your mind. Well, you have to be, if you happen to be born in a, a, a family of, of sudras, uh, uh, the, workers, the working class um, caste or the untouchables, the, the, uh, the uh, uh, outside of the caste system, that uh, you could say they can be, a, you know, a true Brahmin can be someone who's from the, un, the untouchables. <gasps> Gasp! It's, you know, how could you say that? But uh, so that people would um, love what the Buddha said, dis- uh, or, or hate what the Buddha said. So that uh, when you, you, um, uh, I'm sure there have been all kinds of scholarly theories about how come Nibbana got uh, sort of latched on as a sort of key term. But uh, uh, I think it's good to to see how you know words just arise and then gather a. Um, a value, a meaning to them, but it, the most important thing is, is not sort of dictionary definitions and and, uh, and uh, the remembering the wording of explanations, but I would say that the main uh, usefulness is to get a, 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 a within one's own experience, within one's own within one's own mind, to gather a sense of what this is pointing to. What's the the experience that this term is referring to, as I can know it or taste it or can experience it, uh, even if you can't explain it, like Lumpur Cha would often say, you can't explain what an apple tastes like. We, we can't say what you can't explain what honey tastes like. You say, we can say sweet, what tastes sort of appley, 
you know, the apple tastes like an apple. That's what it tastes like. You know, <laughs> you, you you can't really explain it, but you 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 take a bite of the apple and you know this is what it is. You you know it even if you can't explain exactly what an apple tastes like. So that uh, I feel that that um, the usefulness also these readings and uh, these um, uh, becoming more knowledgeable about the the suttas is not just being able to memorize oodles of definitions and such like sutta quotations, but getting a, a clear and direct sense of what's the quality uh, in the heart uh, the, that uh, this term is pointing to. How does that uh, um, say, uh, take shape within our own experience? And uh, and if one uh, reflects in that way and you explore in that way and you realize, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I have no idea what peacefulness is. I've never experienced peacefulness. Even that is a really useful thing to know. It's like, wow, that concept. I, I understand the word peace, but I've never felt peaceful. Wow, look at that. <laughs> so that, that's a helpful way forward. Even that much kind of understanding or knowledge is, is something that's, that's really helpful. And then the, uh, the development of the practice and meditation, and slowly you... Get more and more of a of a a, a, a sense, and uh, as you you work with the mind and see how the uh, uh, the development of skillful qualities uh, has its effects, or the uh, when we we follow unskillful qualities when they have their effects, then we we begin to get a, a sense directly. Okay, this is I think this is the direction it's it's heading in. It's in this kind of quality. This is what it's pointing to. I may not have experienced true peace yet, but this is this is definitely more peaceful than that. <laughs> okay, let's keep steering the mind down this direction and, and let that um, be more uh, let that be developed. That be more fully known, heading the guiding the mind in that direction and and cultivating those qualities that conduce to this kind of uh, freedom, and peacefulness, and and uh, security. So I'll leave it there for today.